Amen. God is good. So this is part two of looking at Jesus in the book of Genesis. Uh, In the first part, we looked at Jesus present in the creation story. From the very beginning, Jesus was present and the light entered the world. And here we'll look at Jesus as the new Adam. I think we're all familiar with the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Um, But the Apostle Paul describes to us in the letter uh, to the Romans about how Jesus is the new Adam. So in a moment, we'll look, we'll look at uh, exactly what that means and then what, what should we learn from it. Uh, but first, I just want to remind us of some two very important things that Jesus tells us. It's almost like uh, an early Bible study. Uh, Jesus is telling the Pharisees that they misunderstand Scripture, which to us would be the Old Testament, because he tells them that all Scripture refers to him. All Scripture refers to Jesus. And he's saying, because you don't understand that, you totally misinterpret what we call the Old Testament. So let's ourselves not fall into that same trap. Take the words of Jesus for what they mean. When we read the Old Testament, we need to understand that should lead us to Jesus, the person of Jesus, and also to the heart of Jesus. And the second thing to keep in mind is after Jesus rose from the dead, Uh, He appears to two people on the road to a city called Emmaus outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus unfolds and explains the entire Old Testament to them. And he's doing so because he's saying, look at all the scripture you're familiar with. They knew the law. They knew the writings of the prophets well. But he was saying, look at all the scripture you've been raised on. And now understand how this whole time has been speaking and referring you to me, referring you to Jesus. And so through Jesus's word, the word of God, what we call the Bible, we should always be led to the person of and the heart of Jesus. And so when we get into the book of Genesis here in a moment, understand as Jesus tells us, it needs to lead us to him. And so that'll be the goal here is is we again look at Jesus in the book of Genesis. Um, before we begin, uh, let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you for the blessing that is today. Um, thank you for the words of life that you've spoken to us, uh, past, present, and future, Lord. And, and I pray that um, everybody listening hears your word, Lord. Um, you've prepared something to put on their heart, Lord. So please open their minds and open their hearts to receive your message and to receive your heart, Lord. Um, We love you, Jesus. Thank you for all the blessings you give us on a daily basis, Lord. In your name, amen. In the letter to the Romans, uh, Paul really takes what Jesus says and kind of inserts like an early Bible study. And so I'm going to read a couple verses here out of uh, Romans chapter 5. He writes, Just as the sin of one man brought sentence of death to all men, now here he's talking about Adam, and he's, he's referencing um, Adam and Eve in the garden. And so let me just insert his name to make it clear, because he's making a comparison about how Jesus is the new Adam. So it would read as this, Just as the sin of one man, Adam, brought the sentence of death to all men, so too one man, Jesus, bore the punishment and brought pardon and life to all men. As the disobedience of one man, Adam, made many sinners, 
so the obedience of one man, Jesus, allowed a multitude to be just and holy. And I just think this um, this insight we get from Paul is just um, one way in which we see how all of the Old Testament refers us to Jesus. And here he's illuminating a really important point that um, Adam, and, and if you take, um, really when it was written, the word Adam is um, meaning man. So Adam is referring to all humanity, not, not simply just um, one historical person, but all of humanity. Um, Paul is showing us how Jesus is undoing, both literally and in this case poetically, the sins, um, what we refer to as original sin, through his death on the cross. And so that's what we're going to look at here is, is we now go to the book of Genesis and saying, okay, how is Jesus the new Adam? How is, his, how is he undone with his death, death and resurrection, um, what was done in the garden originally? One thing I want to make a note of too, um, as a football coach, you don't just study your own team. Like at practice, you will watch film of your own team. You'll watch film of your own practice so you can find out you know, what the mistakes are, what you need to correct the next day of practice as you better prepare. But you also study opponent film because the goal is to know your opponent better than they know themselves. So there's there's two halves that are equally important. You must study yourself. And in this spiritual example, you'd study God and his word and, and um, all that is taught through Christianity. But you also need to study your opponent. You need to understand how Satan attacks you. Because if you don't have that second half, um, you're really unprepared, not understanding the way in which Satan works. So we're going to look at that as well and say, okay, how does Satan attack us? And then let's turn to the example of Jesus. How does Jesus defeat Satan so we can best learn from his example? Um, So now I'm turning to Genesis chapter 3. And I think this is a a story we're all very familiar with. But when you take Jesus' words and understand this story is referring to him, you're just provided with a world of depth that may not be there on the surface when you glance over it. So let's focus first on on our enemy, the enemy, Satan, and better understand how does he attack us and try and lead us into sin, okay? Um, It says in chapter 3, Now the serpent was the most crafty of all the wild creatures that Yahweh God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And this points out the very first thing we can learn about the enemy. First thing we can learn about Satan. What is the first thing here he does to Eve? He tries to put doubt in her mind regarding the word of God. Right? The first thing he says, did God really say that? Now, Eve clearly recounts and accurately what God says. So, so she's not unfamiliar with what God said or um, she's not unwise to it. She knows exactly what God said. But here, Satan, knowing that, is beginning to lead her into sin with doubt. So that, that's the first thing we can take away from our enemy. He tries to always put doubt into our mind. Did God really want you to do that nice thing for somebody else? Does it really matter if you do this? Is it really a big deal, right? I think with uh, probably some of the high school kids I work with, that's probably the 
um, most recognizable way in which Satan tries to intertwine himself on, on kids' daily basis. You hear kids say, oh, is that really a big deal if I do that? Right? The downplaying of sin. Is sin really a big deal? Did God really say that? And so here we take the first lesson about the enemy. Um, he tries to infuse doubt into something that God said, into the Word of God. Now, as we continue, um, Eve accurately says, no, this is what God said. But then Satan responds. And he says to her, the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. And just take that for a moment because Eve tells Satan accurately, here's what God says. He says, do not eat from this tree and you must not touch it or you will die. And Satan immediately contradicts God. God says, you will die. And Satan says, you will not die. And that's the second thing we need to understand. Satan contradicts God and he contradicts the word of God. And we see this all throughout our daily lives and all throughout history. I think probably the most, or I should say the first example that pops to my mind historically um, in, in United States history is how um, many Americans during Jim Crow era tried to use the Bible to justify segregation. Well, that's the mark of Satan. What does Satan do? Satan always tries to divide. Jesus and God the Father unifies, but Satan divides. So if you have somebody in society who's trying to divide groups of people, that's usually the mark of Satan, right? And obviously, if you refer to the, the historical issue of segregation, clearly that was the work of the enemy, using the word of God very inappropriately to try and justify racism and, and trying to justify um, horrible sins. But unfortunately, for some, it was very, Satan was very effective in accomplishing his goal of division and of widespread racism at that time in U.S. history. And there's much smaller examples on our daily lives, but that's just a staple of the enemy, right? Right here saying to Eve, you will not die. Now listen to this as he continues, because we learned something else about the enemy. He says, you will not die, but God knows the day you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like gods, knowing good and evil. And this is the third point we learn. Satan tries to glorify our flesh. Right? You will be like gods. In this case, trying to make it a very attractive sales pitch. Okay? Basically saying, God is lying to you. That's not accurate. What he said is, God's word is not true. If you do what I tell you, you'll be richer. You'll be more powerful. You'll have more friends. You'll have a better job. They're trying to in some way glorify your flesh. And this is also interesting because it speaks to the perspective of Satan versus their perspective of God. Because clearly God is telling the truth. He's saying, Adam and Eve, if you eat of this tree, you will die. Now, think about that for a second. When they ate this tree, did they physically die? No. Okay, but what that tells us is the perspective of God, what his eyes are set on. They did die, but not in a physical, mortal sense. Spiritually, they died. Because for the first time, they sinned and thus separated themselves from God. 
So Satan's perspective, his mindset is always on the flesh. He's saying, your flesh, your mortal body, it won't die. Okay? He's trying to take a partial truth, which is what? A lie. And use a partial truth or a lie to manipulate the word of God. God's focus is on your soul, the betterment of your soul. Satan's focus is on your flesh. So I think you and me have to ask ourselves, where is our focus? Are we concerned with the betterment and the growth of our soul? Or are we concerned with the betterment and growth of our bank account, our status at work, our status among friends, okay? um, the amount of possessions we have? If you're rooted in this world, you are rooted in Satan's kingdom. If you're rooted with your eyes on heaven, seeking first the kingdom, then you're more likely to be rooted in the kingdom of God. So you get a very stark contrast between where Satan tries to put your focus versus where God tries to put your focus. Now, after this, after Satan tries to mislead and tempt Adam and Eve, okay, and they are deceived, um, we get the appearance of the good shepherd, right? The Lord enters the story. And it's interesting because um, Adam and Eve, when they're being tempted, at that point, we don't uh, hear of the person of God yet. But when does he enter this story? He enters after the, their opportunity for free will and after their sin, which should draw us to Jesus' words when he says, you know, I came to call sinners to repentance. And just like a good shepherd, he will always go after his lost sheep. And so after Adam and Eve had an opportunity of free will to choose the Lord, but instead chose sin and separation from him, God enters. And he comes after his lost sheep. Right? And we know that because he asks, where are you? Right? And the question is really um, illuminating the fact that sin separates us from God. God's not saying, where are you because they're lost and you can't find them. It's making the point that when we sin, we willingly choose to separate ourselves from God. But he is the good shepherd. And just like he did for Adam and Eve, he comes in search of us. Where are you? And he calls you. Just like a good father calls his son or his daughter. Where are you? Okay. And now what we have is really the, the second sin here of Adam and Eve when God asks them what happened, he asks for an honest answer. But immediately, what do they do? They do not repent, but they both pass the blame and say, well, Eve, Eve made me do it. And then they both say, the serpent deceived me. I was deceived by the devil. And perhaps, and now this is just me projecting, but perhaps if they had repented and asked, to, asked for forgiveness, we would have had some alternate version to the end of the story. But because they sinned and refused to repent of their sins, they were kicked out of the garden, symbolizing separation from God. And it's also worth noting, too, that in this story, um, the focus is on the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But it also says that God had provided them with everything they need, all, all types of trees, and also the tree of life. And so Adam and Eve could have equally chosen the tree of life or any other good tree. But instead, 
They chose the word of God because they were deceived by Satan. And how often in our life with all the blessings God has bestowed upon us, do we choose to find the one small thing in our life that we perceive as bad and complain about it? Or find reasons to be unhappy, ungrateful, instead of thanking and blessing God for all the things he has given to us and our family and our friends and and all those in our life, the constant blessings he bestows upon us, and, and so much more than we'll truly ever know. But again, that speaks to speaks to our focus. Are you putting your mind on the things of this world, or are you putting your mind on your soul and on eternity, which is what God wishes us to do? Now, we're going to come back to some of the points there, but um, again, this this needs to lead us to Jesus, so that's what we're going to focus on. And, and you get a... Uh, one of my favorite parallels in the Bible, and we'll go over to, you have this in both the Gospel of Matthew and in Luke, and um, we'll just focus on one for the sake of time. So we'll go to Luke, and it's now Jesus, and he is in the desert or the wilderness where he's tempted um, by Satan for 40 days. And when you put these two stories side by side, you get really us, how we most of the time, deal with temptation versus Jesus, how he deals with temptation, right? Adam is reflective of man, humankind, me and you, right? Too many times we fall into Satan's temptation and we, and we choose sin with our free will. But now what we need to do is we need to look at the example of Jesus when he was tempted and then learn from his example, okay? So, there's three times that we're aware of here that the devil tries to tempt Jesus. And let's look at each of those individually. The first example, um, it says that after Jesus had fasted and he didn't eat, he was hungry. And then immediately it says, the devil said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to turn into bread. But Jesus answered, scripture says, People cannot live on bread alone. So let's take this first one. What is Satan doing here? He's trying to attack a weakness in Jesus' flesh, right? Jesus being physically hungry. Okay, Satan's trying to use that as a weakness and play upon it. Now you need to apply that to your own life. What is your weakness? What is the way that you most commonly sin? Satan knows your weaknesses, he knows, and he is always trying to lead you into temptation to whatever form that weakness in your flesh is. Now, use Jesus' example. What does he do? He says, he quotes Deuteronomy, and it's interesting here too. Uh, three times Jesus is tempted by Satan, and all three times he quotes the Bible, the Old Testament, and he quotes the same book, the book of Deuteronomy. And I, I, every time I, uh, I read this, I think when Jesus was tempted by the devil, if he responded by quoting the Old Testament, quoting the book of Deuteronomy, how much more do you and me need to be in tune with the word of God in order to fight off temptation, right? If the Bible and the word of God is foreign to us, we're so much more susceptible to sin. And Jesus could have defeated Satan in any which way he chose, but he's really here providing us an example, 
right? Be rooted with the word of God. Use that, lean on the word of God to fight off temptation when the devil comes for you. And it's interesting, this, the scripture he chose, people cannot live on bread alone. If you continue reading in Deuteronomy, what does it say? But humans live on every word of God. And here we get an interesting parallel back to Genesis because God tells them, don't eat of that tree, you'll die. But again, he's speaking of their soul, right? Your soul will die because sin separates you from God. And here Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy and it says, that we live on every word of God. Well, you could physically go your whole life and live to be 80 years old and never open the Bible, right? But again, that's speaking to the life of your soul, your spiritual life. So if you want to be spiritually alive, what do you need? You need every word of God, which tells us we need to spend time in our Bibles. We need to spend time in communication and prayer with God, we our soul spiritually, we need that, right? The the verse Jesus quote doesn't say you should or you sometimes or you might. It might be advantageous to you. No, it it says you need it. You need every word of God. Okay, now go to the second temptation. The devil again, right? He says, okay, that didn't work. I tried to attack the weakness in his flesh. That didn't work. That was the second thing Satan tries to do. He tries to glorify. Jesus' flesh, right? He promises them all these worldly pleasures, right? And he tells them, um, I can give you power over all the nations and their wealth will be yours. For power and wealth, this is Satan speaking, for power and wealth have been delivered to me, Satan, and I give them to anyone I choose. When I read this, this is a, a very stern warning how we should not desire power and we should not desire wealth. Satan is laying it out here. He is laying it out clearly for us. He's saying, I can give power and wealth to anyone I so choose because for a time being, God has allowed Satan to have that capability. For anyone who's uh, high school, college, and you're listening, you're thinking, what do I want to do professionally the rest of my life? If power and wealth are factoring into your decisions, you have lent a hand to the enemy. You are helping Satan accomplish his work. Jesus, I mean, we could you know, speak forever on this, but he, he can't make it any more clear on the topic of power and money. And if you don't want to listen to his words, then look at the life of Jesus. He was born into poverty. He lived in poverty. He was homeless and he died with nothing. Why? Because his focus was not on this world. His focus was on heaven and the afterlife and the salvation of souls. Why would we spend our life trying to obtain power and wealth if that's potentially leading us further into temptation and farther away from the heart of Jesus? Now, Jesus' response, again, he quotes the book of Deuteronomy and he says, No, you shall, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. Now, he's quoting Deuteronomy, but we hear Jesus say something very similar later in the Gospels. He tells us, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon or money, worldly power. It's a It's a choice. 
And a lot of the times we like to comfort ourselves and say, well, God doesn't want me to. And we want the will of God to fit in with what's comfortable and convenient with us. But Jesus never says that. He's very clear. You cannot serve this world and the Lord. You can't. Because you're either living for this life or you're living for the afterlife. And that's a huge choice we all have to make. On a, on a big picture about our careers and our friends and our family, but also on a daily basis, the ways we invest our time and um, how much we give back to the Lord, how much we pray. So you cannot serve two masters. And here again, when Jesus is confronting Satan, he makes that very clear. Now let's go to the third temptation of Jesus. So first, Satan tried to attack a weakness in Jesus' flesh, his hunger. Then he tries to glorify his flesh. I'll give you power, money, fame, wealth. Those didn't work. So his last attempt is to challenge Jesus' faith. And so he says, now how interesting is this? Satan quotes scripture. Satan quotes the Old Testament. And I just encourage you to go read it for yourself, but he's quoting Psalm 91. And I've mentioned this before, but what's so interesting about it is um, in the end of this story, it says, when the devil had exhausted every way of tempting Jesus, he left him until a more opportune time. So Satan grew exhausted, right? For 40 days, he tried to tempt Jesus. But Jesus persevered in prayer. The Holy Spirit has perseverance. Satan does not have perseverance. His hope is that you will quickly give in to temptation and you will rashly make a decision with your free will to choose sin. But if you persevere in the faith and if you persevere in prayer, Satan will grow exhausted, not you. Because the Holy Spirit has perseverance, the devil doesn't have perseverance. And this example to me is just so interesting because I always think if Satan would have just kept reading Psalm 91, he would have seen a prophecy about how the story was going to end. Because Psalm 91 talks about um, the serpent's head being crushed, right? And the defeat of Satan by God. Um, But let's go to Jesus's response now. But Jesus replied, it is written, you shall not challenge the Lord your God. There's a lot to be said on this, but um, unfortunately, many people, maybe in your life or at your church or in society, will try and use the word of God for their political, financial gain, whatever the case may be. Um, And, you know, that's that's their own sin. They have to deal with that. But it is our responsibility to be really educated on the word of God and to be true to Jesus and to be true to our faith and to not be easily manipulated when people quote the word of God and try and use that to manipulate us. And here Jesus is just showing us, he's saying, don't challenge the Lord your God, right? But be be strong in your faith. And when people challenge your faith, like the Bible tells us, be prepared, have a reason why you believe so strongly in your faith and be prepared with your actions to put on display your faith through good deeds and good works and acts of mercy and acts of love and acts of charity. So be prepared to always defend your faith confidently with a humble heart, 
um, but with also a loving passion. So people can see you are truly committed to your faith. And somebody simply questioning you is not going to deter you or throw you off. Right? How much time we spend in our jobs or work or sports preparing. Right? Either we feel obligated or because we love it. But sometimes I think we spend so little time investigating, learning more about researching, spending time learning about our faith. And so for all of us, myself included, let's make a bigger investment in our faith. So when Satan tries to tempt us and challenge our faith, we have a very strong, compelling answer um, that we can always rely upon and rely upon the Lord. Now, I think uh, let's put these two together as we wrap it up. Um, what, what do we learn from all this, right? Jesus is the new Adam, um, as we saw from Paul saying, one man brought sin into this world, but then you also had one man who conquered sin. And just on that thought for a moment, how interesting is this? If you go back to the, the story in the garden, the serpent used a tree to introduce sin into this world. And Jesus used a tree to defeat sin and to defeat that same serpent when he died on the cross. <laughs> God is good, man. God is good in, in all ways. Um, now let's look at three points here. Um, what do we need to learn from Jesus being the new Adam, Jesus being present in the story in the garden? The, the first thing, number one, be rooted in the word of God. Satan tries to deceive you. He will say, did God really say that? Does your faith really want you to do that? He will try and infuse doubt in your mind so you start questioning the Lord. Be strongly attached to, rooted in, and knowledgeable of the Word of God. Right? Simply read your Bible. Love learning about your Creator. Number two, Satan is the father of all lies. He is the master of deception. And he is always trying to create division within groups in society, within families, within your own mind. So when we choose to sin, that is the biggest form of division because it separates us from God. So knowing our enemy is advantageous for us spiritually. And, and that brings me to the third point is... Um, how do we not allow this division to happen? How do we not allow ourselves to sin and be separated from God? A huge point of that is prayer and spending significant time with God. Why did Jesus go to the desert for 40 days? Um, that was actually uh, not unheard of in the time of Jesus. People would go out into the wilderness for an extended period of time. Um, and it was usually to fast and to pray. And Jesus here is giving us an example. Um, he is, he is praying and preparing for a lifestyle. It's not necessarily so much of a prayer for God answer this problem for me, but he's praying in preparation for what is to come. So stay rooted in the word Understand Satan will try and deceive you. He will try and create division between you and your creator. Um, and understand we need to spend time in prayer. On a daily basis, we need prayer. I know for myself, um, I'll take a recent example. Uh, this past week, um, 
I didn't spend as much time um, praying and reading my Bible like I like I do every day. And I notice immediately there are temptations to sin that normally don't exist. And the more time I spend in prayer and the more time I spend reading my Bible, it just feels like insulation that is protecting me from this outside ever-present temptation where, where I don't in any way feel an urge or I don't feel compelled to be um, tricked by those temptations. I don't feel an urge to sin. It's in no way appealing or attractive to me because the Holy Spirit has insulated me. The Word of God has insulated me and thus protected me, right? Think of the Our Father. Lord, don't let us fall into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Right there in, in the prayer we learn from our Lord Jesus, he's telling us, pray that you don't be led into temptation, but that God will deliver you from evil. And so the more time we spend in prayer, the more God's hand is is heavy upon us, and he is the one delivering us from sin, and he is leading us away from temptation. Now that is different than leading us into challenging situations. And this is the last point I want to bring up. I think it's very interesting how the beginning of the story of Jesus in the desert begins. Okay. Now keep in mind, Jesus had just been baptized by John the Baptist and he is full of the Holy Spirit. So he's in full communion with God, the father through the Holy Spirit. And so immediately after his baptism, what does it say? It says the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the desert where he was tempted. Now that kind of seems counterintuitive. Why would the Holy Spirit lead us into a place where Satan is going to try and tempt us? Well, look at other examples in the Bible that are so similar. When God promises Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars. What almost immediately follows that promise from God it says a great famine struck the land and he enters into this immediate hardship for Abraham. That probably had to be really confusing. God, you just promised me all these amazing things. And now everyone around me is, is starving. Look at Joseph and, and his dreams. He has dreams that his family will bow down to him, right? And he will have in some way this, this role of honor within his family. And what happens almost immediately after these dreams, his brothers sell him into slavery Look at Paul as he goes around uh, the Mediterranean world and teaching people about Jesus. It's always saying the Holy Spirit would lead Paul or lead Barnabas. But what was happening when the Holy Spirit led them to these places? When the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit leads them to these new cities, they're being beat up. They're being stoned almost to death. They're being thrown in prison. So it, it does seem counterintuitive that the Holy Spirit is leading these people into these uh, very, very challenging situations. Um, but that makes me think of a, a quote from a modern-day saint, um, actually born in the great state of Wisconsin, uh, St. Salinas Casey. And uh, I'll read the quote directly for you. It says, do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger people. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. And that quote to me summarizes the point I'm making about Jesus, Abraham, Joseph, Paul. 
we could pray, God, take this problem out of our life. Right? And the, and the Lord may grant that to us. But on the same hand, we could also pray, Lord, let me do your work, whatever that may be, however challenging that may be. And when we've received the Holy Spirit, we are now ready and able to do more challenging work, like Paul, who's being beat up or imprisoned for his, his beliefs, or Joseph, who's being sold into slavery. Right? The Holy Spirit makes us more capable of challenging tasks and challenging opportunities than we ever would be able without the Holy Spirit. So maybe start praying for the Holy Spirit to fill you and to do God's work, however challenging that may be, instead of praying for the problems to go away in your life. Because prayer will both insulate you from sin and help you better fend off temptation, and it will also begin to fill you with the Holy Spirit so you are more ready, able, and willing to do the work of God. May God bless you.